The content of CPR Unplugged is designed for entertainment purposes only and is not intended as mental health treatment or medical or mental health advice. Details such as names and locations may have been changed to protect individual privacy. Hello and welcome to CPR Unplugged. My name is Jess. I'm your host for today. Whoever you are, wherever you are, whatever you're doing today, I appreciate you joining us. Today I am joined by Bob. And um, he's going to share his story and his experiences with COVID, as he likes to refer to it, life BC before COVID, and then after his experience um, surviving that illness. So, Bob, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me here. And I'm going to kind of leave it open for you to start this story with your first, when you first noticed symptoms, when you were first diagnosed, what did that look like for you? Well, it was kind of different in the sense that, well, since I had none of the typical symptoms, which is really, um, I really try to tell as a message to people to pay attention because I didn't have the, the, um, uh, the loss of taste or the fever. I had none of that. The whole situation started on, uh, one day and I was talking to a, um, business associate of mine who was saying, you just, you don't sound right. And I'm like, I'm fine. I'm fine. And uh, she'd call later in the day to check on me. And I was on the phone and she goes, you sound almost delirious. There's something wrong. I'm like, oh, no, 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 no. I'm fine. I'm fine. As we never want to think there's something actually wrong. She goes, no, you need to. So she called uh, 911. The EMT showed up at my uh, house and you know, and they knocked on the door and I'm like, I'm fine. They're looking at me going, no, you're really not fine. And so I went out and I said, okay. And I went out and I sat on the patio, the chair in my patio to put my shoes on. Cause I grabbed my shoes and sat down and put it on. And that's the last thing I remember for eight weeks. Lights out. I don't remember getting on the gurney. I don't remember going to the hospital. I was in a coma for eight weeks. And then I was in a coma for eight weeks. I was in ICU for another month. I was in the hospital another month. And then I was six weeks in rehab, learning to walk again. During that time, I lost 60 pounds and, and I didn't have 60 pounds to lose. I'm six foot one. I weigh 205 pounds. I didn't have 60 pounds to lose. And I, I coded. I, I died three times during this process. So while I was in the coma, I had uh, everything imaginable that, that could happen. And it was all from the COVID. So there were several things physically, obviously, uh, waking up from the coma was, uh, I was uh, all alone and, uh, you know, isolation and completely alone. But what was odd when I first woke was that I knew where I was. I knew I was in a hospital. I knew why I was there because of COVID. And I known I was there for a long time. I didn't know how long. Now, that being said, I thought I was in a hospital in California. I'm not really sure why that was, but the odd part was that I had not seen or spoken to anyone. The isolation was very difficult uh, when you talk about the physical part, because number one, I couldn't move. I could not believe how quickly and how much all of my muscles atrophied I couldn't move. I couldn't roll on my side. I couldn't sit up. I couldn't move at all. So you woke up in the hospital and you had an idea, right, of, of kind of why you were there and, and what had occurred, how you ended up there. What were some of the first thoughts that went through your mind? Well, 
it's kind of a couple of things because when I was, um, when I first woke up, the first several days was just trying to connect the dots. It was really kind of blurry uh, from what I was able to uh, pick up, uh, you know, hallucinations and stuff, I guess were fairly common. And I had, I mean, we're not talking hallucinations like two headed dragons or anything like that. It was just a hallucination of thinking somebody was standing in the room when, when they were not um, a doctor or something, but the very, the thing that was very difficult outside of not being able to move the mental part was the, the isolation. I mean, it was, that was very, very difficult feeling so alone, which I was, it wasn't even like I wasn't, I was completely alone and completely isolated. And even when the uh, nurses would come into the room, they would just, they would have to gown up. They said they, they didn't just have a mask on. They had a mask and a shield. They had their gloves. They had a gown at the door. They put on the gown, they'd come in and they'd, you know, do their thing, check the vitals or whatever, and out the door in five minutes. The first part of it was so frustrating because um, I had I had a tracheostomy, so I had a trach in my throat. Well, I couldn't talk. Well, I couldn't talk and I couldn't move. So that when I needed to get a hold of you know the call button for whatever reason, um, that I would hit it and they would get on saying, you know, what do you need or how can I help you? Well, I couldn't talk. I couldn't do anything. So they just hang up. Mm. And so it would get, it would get. So when I hit it, I'd, I'd knock on it. I'd rap on it until I got somebody's attention. After a couple of days, they realized that if my room went off, they'd have to come in because I couldn't talk. It is the level that you sink down to, which surprised me because it was so isolationist. It was so, you know, the depression. I am not afraid to say that the first three months after I woke up, I cried every day. I mean, weird, I know, but I cried every day. But what I guess the message that I tried to tell people is that to not take this lightly because it consumes so much your body. It's not just a respiratory thing. And, and I had it, I had COVID, I had pneumonia, I had the flu too at the same time. I was intubated four different times. I mean, all these things that, as I've been finding out, are just insane. People look at me, professional medical people look at me and go, that's, I mean, my file is over 500 pages. And uh, I have said uh, that my name and miracle come up a lot in the same sentence. And, and I appreciate that. But I'm a long way from being well. I've been out of the hospital since August, the end of August. And it has been a very, very slow, slow process. Now, I've been able to, with reaching out and talking to people, to uh, come to a little bit more of a, I can't say a happy place, but a little more of a uh, normality, well, a normal place, but it's still a struggle. There's still so much that you have to face. Fatigue is overwhelming the uh you know not just uh the weakness but an overall fatigue uh happens so quickly like you said the various uh, parts of the you know i still have to wear a leg brace i still have to or a well foot brace you know leg brace uh getting around getting the dexterity back was very slow uh, and i said uh, i got home and i was weak as a kitten and skinny as a snake i just couldn't do anything so 
to be fair, you were also very, you were isolated for a long period of time. Did you have any way to connect and, and reach out aside from the medical providers? Were you in contact with family during this time? None, none. They wouldn't, they, they wouldn't allow it. And certainly at the time, I mean, it was just all hands on deck and there was nothing. There was no, uh, I mean, I, I laid in that bed and not being able to move or, and for a while, after a few weeks, they, they got me a voice valve so I could, I could talk a little bit, but it was staring at the ceiling hour after hour, day after day, week after week, month after month, staring at the ceiling. There was no contact with anybody. There was no, there was no radio. There was no television. There was just me alone in this room. So, and, and, and in the bed, you know, so with IVs in both arms, I mean, it was, yeah, good time not had by all. And it was that overwhelming sense of isolation, the overwhelming and, and really wanting to just talk to somebody or reach out. But the, even the first part of it, I couldn't talk. After a couple of days, they, they brought in a, a dry erase board so I could try to make notes. But then I realized that I didn't have, and I didn't know until that point, I have the dexterity in my hands to be able to write. They gave me a marker in this dry erase board and I, I couldn't write. And so, it, you know, uh, after working with that a little bit, at least I could put a couple of words to try to get a message to. The staff in general was, was good. I mean, they were clearly, and you could see it in them that they were clearly overworked and, and, and almost frantic in, in, in and out and trying to, to do that. Uh, some were very, very good. There was a um, nurse uh, supervisor who was, um, uh, who would actually, um, because I didn't know all the, all I knew is that I was COVID, but I had no idea to the extent and what it was. And this nurse would come in uh, on her shift and spend some time talking to me, updating me, telling me what I went through, everything that was going on. And I was just absolutely floored with what it was. And, uh, and then there's others that were on the other extreme that, uh, that didn't seem to care at all. And perhaps they, were, uh, uh, they did that by virtue of who they were or maybe just so overworked. I, I'm not sure, but there were extremes. There were very helpful, very caring people and some that uh, were just the opposite. So uh, that didn't help the cause. Well, more than even detached, we're absolutely, there was uh, one situation where I had a, uh, uh, a time, and this was actually when I had gone from the hospital to uh, rehab. Uh, to like again, trying to get some strength, trying to learn how to walk, uh, even with the walker, and I couldn't. I was I couldn't breathe. I was the, really that part where you're, you get frantic, and and hopefully you'll never have to experience that. Or perhaps if you have, then you understand how frantic you become when you can't breathe. So I'm hitting the call button and nobody's coming and then I'm waiting. And then, so then I start like hitting the wall because I'm trying to get somebody's attention. And when the nurse showed up, she stood next to me very defiantly and put her hands on her hips and said, what do you want? You're disturbing the other patients. I've got other things to do. What do you want? I was like, 
I can't breathe. I'm dying, you know? And she just kind of shrugged her shoulders and walked away. So there was extremes. There was uh, another time in the hospital that I could not get a hold of somebody and they would not come, although I kept hitting the call button. And it was a situation where I had to be changed um, and for the risk of being indelicate, but uh, you know, you, I had, couldn't move. I couldn't do anything. Mm-hmm. And no one came and no one came and no one came. And I wound up lying in my own filth for five hours, which the less said about that, the better. And uh, so there were equal parts extremes that really can, I mean, when, because I had the trach, it was finding a place to uh, a rehab place to take me when they wanted to, you know, discharge me from the hospital. And they had said, well, you're going to go to the rehab this afternoon or at the latest tomorrow morning, but we need your room. So we're going to move you out of the room. And they moved me downstairs uh, to what is the post-op. Now, this is where they're rolling in everybody that's just coming out of surgery, which the visual on that, you can imagine. And they're across from me and they put me there and they have the bed and they pull the curtains around me. Now, I could reach out with one hand and touch the curtain on one side and I could touch the curtain on the other side. Now there's no, there's no phone, there's no TV, there's nothing. Okay. And there, I'm in that tight an area, uh, again, needing anything to be changed. I, I wasn't eating, I was in the feeding tube. I had a little cabinet next to me. I could beat on the cabinet to try to get somebody's attention. So I was supposed to go that afternoon or by the very latest next morning. And I laid there for five days just lying there for five days so that was also no fun where was um when you were hospitalized where were we at in the course of the pandemic was this uh 2020 was this earlier this year oh no no this is 2020 this was the it was a year ago well a year ago this month i was in a coma so okay so it was really early on in the pandemic yeah yeah and the question i get asked I get asked a lot is where I, you know, where did I get it? And the question is, I have no idea. And I thought I was doing all the right things, mask, distance, this, that. I thought I was doing all the right things, which I, which I was. And I still, now I do understand that everybody reacts differently. Some people are asymptomatic. Some people get a little sniffle and things like that. What I went through. And when I spoke to my doctor about it, I said, geez, I've never met anybody who was as sick as I was. And that she said, that's because they're dead. She said over 90% of the people who get like you do don't survive. And, you know, the, I guess the twofold thing is one, the physical, but emotional, you know, not only was I looking to get some sort of support or just some sort of compassion and I don't, and I don't want to sound like this was, you know, just uh, in some senses and some of the things, and you don't have time to listen to what was an absolute horror story with no exaggeration. There was some good people, but it wasn't, you know, I'd, I'd seen these news shows about, you know, there's one where uh, this guy had been in the hospital 116 days and he, they were rolling out, the staff was clapping and they had balloons and his family was, you know, and they rolled him out and they had signs. And, and the first thing I thought when I was watching, I go, well, I blew by a hundred you know, over a hundred days, 30 days ago, you know, mm-hmm. and, and I still wasn't going home. And then when I got out, 
they put me in a chair, wheelchair, rolled me to the door and just kind of went, well, there's the bones rush. Get out of here. Go away. There was nobody. I had no, no one. It was very much alone. What did you do for like just mental health survival at that point? Like what were some of the things that you told yourself? What were some of the the ways that you found to cope over time as you were experiencing this in the hospital? I didn't. I, w- I was completely, while it wasn't until I had been home for a couple months when I was at the, you know, uh, to say that I was on the edge of the abyss looking down, that was it. And, I mean, to tell you how, you know, just the way things, there was a late Saturday night that I, was just trying to find coping skills. How can I get through this? What can I do? Because I told you I was just at the lowest point. I couldn't move. I couldn't do anything. I didn't, you know, financial disaster. I mean, it was just this entire, everything, every part of this and not having the strength. And I told you, and so it was like late one night calling up the number they said for, if you're thinking about ending your life, I'm like, you know, I survived this, but why? You know, what, what, what have I gained, you know? So I called up the, this place and talked to them for five, mu- five minutes and they hung up on me. Mm. So now picture that you're at your lowest and the one place that's supposed to reach out for help, they hung up on me. Said, well, there's nothing we can do for you. Go read a book or watch a movie or listen to some music. Click. Wow. <laughs> yeah. So I had said that the one thing that never discount the uh, uh, ability of, uh, of a purring cat on your lap, because my, my cats jump on my lap and, and purr. And that was a soothing thing to just have my cats on my lap, you know. But it wasn't until I started getting involved. Uh, and, and again, this was a a process. I had a friend who was just a friend from Florida, who's a, a, a medical person. And uh, uh, I was talking to her and she was like, and through her contacts and her ability from there, from Florida was put me in touch with some people through, uh, well, through your organization stuff that were able to start giving me the tools to start. And it was really really baby steps. This wasn't zero to, you know, zero to 60 in two seconds. This was a real process. And it was really learning how to develop the skills, learning how to balance it between this and physical rehab. And as I was beginning to get stronger, I was beginning to help with things, but then, um, you know, looking at things and reading and, and giving me stuff to, to read, those were all helpful. And then so you know, uh, the more I learned and the more I found out about it, uh, you know, as they say, you know, data, 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 I can't make bricks without clay. So I started getting more information and more stuff, uh, through, uh, different groups. And, and that's, that's how I did it, but it was desperate for a while. And even after I was home, because it was, it was alone. I feel like that's one of the biggest fallouts for COVID survivors is once you were quote unquote medically stable, it, you just fall off the map and people don't realize that there's a lot that happens after medical, you know, medical stability really is the, it's step one. Right. And then there's all these, these steps after the fact. 
Thank you. That's exactly the one, my one message to tell it is that, you know, and it doesn't have to be as extreme as I was, because again, I just scratched the surface of how, uh, you know, uh, and how almost cavalier uh, some people, when I woke up from the coma, there was one nurse who had come up to me and said that she was making a rounds and happened to be standing right next to me one of the times I stopped breathing. And she said, yeah, but you're only dead about three minutes or so. And I just looked at her and said, you know, the words only and dead should never be in the same sentence. Right. <laughs> you know, I say I'm an engineer. I'm not a medical person. But of all the things that you could have that could go wrong in the hospital, I'm thinking dead is the worst. I'm just guessing, but I'm thinking dead is the worst. Yeah. Yeah. The perspective there is. Uh, wow. Yeah. Even then, when I when I tell you know you almost get tired of saying it, but I I really I, two things is this this thing isn't gone away and people yes there's vaccine and yes it's getting better but globally you look at it and you you look at these you know um, every day and of course it's it's forefront in my mind because of what I'm going through and this is you know, uh, I'm still, the, the doctors said, said, I mean, I go to multiple doctors a week, just trying to, you know, get a grasp on trying to get well with things that I may never, I mean, I went to the doctor and they said, well, you know, you've been dealing with this a while. This may be permanent. And we're not talking little things. We're talking major issues with me that may be permanent. Tell me a little bit about that since so since you got out of rehab in your home and um, what are, what's some of the fallout that you're still experiencing that you're still coping with? The two major things that, I, well, three actually things that I've come up is from lying in the, the bed and, and in the coma, they just kind of flop you down and, and uh, not really care how they lay. They're more concerned with, I guess, keeping you alive, but you know, painful things like, okay, I've got bone spurs now on both shoulders, which hurt. But that's not really that's just more uncomfortable. My right foot had developed what they call foot drop, okay, where I can't really lift or move my foot and the balance and the and it's all numb, both feet. And that is part of what they have been telling me is it's not just a respiratory issue, it's affected the nerves and the nerves in the foot, but the nerves also have affected the uh, the function of of the bladder. So I walk around with a catheter cut into my abdomen and, and a bag strapped to my leg because the, the bladder's not functioning. It's all tied into the same nerve strain. This is, I've been to three different neurologists who have told me uh, at length all the different things that it is. And will it come back? Yeah. You know, I, how many times have I heard? We just don't know. I mm. cannot tell you how many times I've heard that. And so outside of getting around, I mean, uh, yes, I've been able to get stronger where I don't use uh, a walker anymore, but I, I can't walk without a cane. I mean, more than maybe one or two steps. Uh, standing up is an issue, getting dizzy, but having to walk around with a bag strapped to your leg at all times is no fun. Um, is that permanent? Maybe. Um, 
is it frustrating? Certainly. Is it so much against my lifestyle because of who I am? And that's the other thing is part of what I've had to come to adjustment with, with this whole, you know, as I said, where I am and then BC, you know, before COVID uh, is completely different. I mean, I've always been a person who has said, you, you play the cards you're dealt, you, you work with what this is, but everything I have now is different. It's, you know, I have to learn how to adjust to the new me and, you know, mentally it's no problem. Although at first, again, you know, the, all the porch lights weren't on when I first woke up and that took uh, several weeks before everything started clicking. When I first woke up, it was so extreme. I, I couldn't remember my age. I couldn't remember how old I was. Again, those things all came back and, uh, you know, working with different mental exercises and stuff like that has, has helped uh, bring that all about. So I feel like my point is that there are still things that I have to adjust to that I, you know, things that I, that I, you know, what do, what do I enjoy doing? Well, I was doing everything I enjoy doing and I can't do them anymore. I can't even go for a bike ride. I can't go for uh, a hike. I can't do, I can't play golf. I can't do uh, recreationally. There's nothing I can do. So what else do you like to do? Well, I'm trying to, I'm trying to know at this point in my life. And there is no group. There's no, um, I've looked around for any type of uh, group that's, that specializes in this and there isn't. And there's nobody that seems to give uh, a rodent's rump about, well, you know, maybe, maybe somebody does need a hand doing something or finding something else. And so Dealing with the health issues, the physical issues, dealing with the emotional issues, which are still there, because I still get depressed, just not to the extreme that I was. I mean, I don't cry every day, but I still get depressed. And I'm alone. So it's not like I have, um, you know, anybody who and that's what I said, you know, the message I would say is, hey, pick up the phone and call, even if they just went through it and say, how you feeling? How's it going? just because it's not just the physical part of it. They want to hear somebody say, how you feeling? You know, even if it's just a quick couple minute phone call, well, just want to check in and see how you're doing. Keep it up. You need, and, and the other thing is don't say, well, if you need something, give me a call because unless you mean it, because I've had people say that. And then when I got to a point where I needed something, I picked up the phone and they called and they said, mm, can't do it. Well, uh, I'm not doing this to inconvenience you. You started this, you know, right. you're the one who said to do it. So don't say it if you don't mean it, because that, that that exacerbates the problem, makes it worse, because now you feel so much more alone because you were just rejected on somebody who said to do it. So, And there's a lot of, um, a lot of fear, a lot of stigma associated with people who have been COVID positive. And I think that's something you don't hear a lot in the news and it isn't really talked about. Did you notice that people, did you have any experiences like that? Did anyone treat you any differently? Um, did you find that any of your relationship shifted at all? Absolutely. Absolutely. There was a couple, uh, you know, uh, friends and stuff and, and even casual, you know, uh, acquaintances more so than close friends where I would get to them and they would like back up, you know, like back right away from not just the, 
six foot social distance. They would like back right up for me. I'm like, hey, I don't have, you know, trust me, I've got the antibodies. I, you know, no. And, you know, of course, I'm, I'm wearing a mask. I'm kind of maniacal about wearing the mask and all this stuff. But yeah. And, you know, I try to laugh it off, but it, it's not always that easy. And I think this conversation would be different if we said that you were a cancer survivor, right? You, you had mentioned there's a lot of, first off, a lot of people just didn't know and still don't know about COVID. There's a lot of politicization of COVID. Um, there's not a lot of supportive resources, like you said. So this is kind of, unfortunately, you're in that trailblazing, right? You're one of the first survivors of this ever in history. And that's a, a, a real difficult spot to find yourself in. And I can imagine if there are people listening to this who have gone through um, even, even a fraction of what you've experienced, where is the light in the storm? What, what have you found? What, what would you say to them? What would you hope that other people would have said to you? Well, the number one thing is, is the connection. Um, you're right. Uh, that's a good good analogy. If I was a cancer survivor, there would be resources and people and pink ribbons and gray ribbons and T-shirts and the whole smash. This there isn't. And, you know, there's only about, you know, a zillion numbers to call for support of your cancer or any number of other illnesses or injuries. With this, like I said, uh, I have found that once you, they say you tested negative, what I say is this, you know, number one, because it's not just a physical issue. There's the whole emotional and, and um, everything that goes with that, that, that really amplify, you know, what I have to deal with. And I'm, and again, I, I'm not out of Maybe I'm out of the woods and I just found out that they said that 59% of the people who kind of like got like I or close to what I was, they die within six months after they get out of the hospital. And that's not on the list of COVID stuff because they die later. Well, I, I made it past that, you know, because mm-hmm. I remember after I, I was out of hospital for a few months and I was seeing my uh, primary care and she looked at me very frankly and said, you're not out of the woods yet. And I thought, whoa, I thought I was. <laughs> The one thing I'm really taking from your story is the importance of um, human connection, recognizing yes. that people who are are in the hospital with COVID, people who have experienced COVID, even people who haven't, we need we need to connect on a human level and um, recognize the humanity in others around us. Yeah, and and perhaps that that's what I said. Perhaps I'm looking at through rose colored glasses. You know? mm-hmm. you're right. It's been politicized. It's been uh, so uh, polarizing that that you can't, but you know it's not just a matter of losing our humanity. It's a matter of uh, looking at how we're engaging with everybody. Because what if this was your family? What if this was your mm-hmm. son, daughter, mother, father? Uh, mm-hmm. How would you feel? And um, so, and it's not just a matter of let's all do this to feel good because we're going to hold hands and sing kumbaya. I don't mean that. I mean, like you said, engaging because 
the depression, because of the anxiety, because of the very real conditions that are side effects of the COVID, mm -hmm. uh, that are documented side effects of the COVID need to be addressed just like taking a, a pain pill or something. Right. Yeah, definitely. Healing holistically everything. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining us and sharing your story. I know that you, uh, in sharing this story, have kind of become an advocate and a voice for those who are either unable or don't have the platform to speak on on their behalf. So I really appreciate it and um, very honored by the fact that you would share this with us. Well, thank you for the chance to say something. I I, I keep telling people I I will say it from the highest rooftops because if it helps one person not have to go through not only what I have been through, but continue to go through, then that's a good thing. Um, but, um, you know, I, I just, just keep moving ahead, right? That's all we that's can all say, we can right? all we can do. Yeah. What, what's the old saying about why is the windshield bigger than the back window? Because it's more important to look forward than it is to look backward. So it's a good message to leave it on. All right. Thanks, Bob. I appreciate it. Thank you. If there's anything you need, please call. Got questions or ideas for the podcast? Or perhaps you have your own story to share. We'd love to hear from you. Email us at podcast at crisisprepandrecovery.com or call 602-281-7795. You can also find us online at cprpodcast.podbean.com or wherever you prefer to find your podcast. CPR Unplugged was produced by Crisis Preparation and Recovery, Inc., the intro and outro music was created by Rob Wilson. The CPR podcast team includes Tamara Lamontagne, Ben Edwards, Laura Kaufman, Rob Wilson, and Michael Magarinos. Special thanks to Jason Spisak for technical support.